And it's time for peer pressure. Today, my guest is Steve Wynn. He'll be talking about his travels, some of his early bands, Goat Deity, hoo-hoo, the Dream Syndicate's baseball project, working at record stores in L.A., and more. Please stay tuned, and thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for handling all the other podcast duties. We are WFMU. Steve, is that you? I think I'm over here. Yes, I, I am you here. Are over there. Hey, Diane. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank how are you, you doing? I'm I am quite well, and thank you for coming. So, my guest for uh, Peer Pressure today is Steve Wynn. I'm glad to be here. We've been talking about this for a while, and finally made it. I know happen. you've you've been upstairs, you've been downstairs, you've been, <laughs> you've you've shown up at Isn't FMU. Isn't that a TV show the the WFMU version of Upstairs Downstairs? Upstairs yeah. Downstairs. <laughs> a little less regal. I was going to say a little bit too refined. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too refined for WFMU. Steve does not have an instrument with him today. He has he's brandishing records. Yes. Instead, so I've, uh, I've, I've, I busted my CD booklet. I haven't had that out in a long time. It's oh, like one of those yeah. relics, you know, like with an. Cassette boxes and singles cases. Actually, singles oh, yeah. cases I still have, but CD yeah. cases. This used to be like I'm I'm, ho- I'm I'm looking at it and holding my hand. You know, one of those standard twenty sleeve um, CD booklet sort of things that mm-hmm. was an essential part of your life. Like yeah. twenty years ago, you have that. I mean, when I went on tour, I'd fill up about three of these, and that'd be my library for the next two months. Oh yeah. And I haven't had this out in years, so this was a good excuse to. Bust out the DJ booth, and, the portable and to, DJ booth, and your and your CG, CD wallet feels needed and nurtured, and like wow, I'm useful again. Exactly Yay, right, right. Because everybody's just traveling with their their you know bubblegum size iPods and, and yeah, stuff now. Some has changed things. <laughs> so you have so much going on. I almost don't know where to start. But um, tell me, tell me, let's get the listeners up to speed in terms of you know, where you've been and uh, and what you have going on now. Well, I, guess, I mean, the things I chose to play today have somehow a loose tie into where I've been and where I'm going. So that's, you know, that's the theme. I was trying to think of a theme like, I don't know, you know, all Thank you. all songs about goats or a song, you know. <laughs> songs. Wait, 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 wait. But you were in a band that had the word goat that's in it at some very point. very good, Diane. That's right. I was in a band called Goat Deity. <laughs> that's, that, that's very impressive. <laughs> yeah, Goat Deity. <laughs> what, what year was Goat Deity, I never, I never would have imagined I'd be talking about Goat Deity 31 years later. when it, that, that was at 80, 81, right before the Dream Syndicate. It kind of led to the Dream Syndicate because uh, I was working at a record store called Mo disc in Los Angeles, oh, wow. and I had this, this these customers who came in all the time, these sisters who were really nice, really friendly, like cool music, and they said, oh, we want to bring you a tape of the songs we're working on, and he brought it in for me, and I freaked out because it was like the Shags. I mean, it sounded like the Shags record to me, wow. and I just went, this is the greatest thing ever. I can't believe it, and I, and I told them when they came back in again. Now, of course, at, the point, at that time, almost nobody knew the Shags. I mean, it wasn't like a band that was right. well-known. I just happened to have that... I guess, rounder version that came out at the time, but I loved it. And anyway, I told them, you guys are great. You remind me of the Shags, and they bought the Shags record. Came in like three days later, hating me, mad at me, saying, we don't sound anything like that. How could you say that? I said, I meant that in a good way. I love the Shags. Anyway, we formed this band, sort of, quote unquote, the two of them on drums and guitar and me playing with them, just trying to honor this crazy, weird thing where those songs would you know, speed up and slow down and change key for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and I, I was just trying to, to ride the wild horse. Anyway, we played one show in their in their in their mother's living room to her friends. Oh, really? <laughs> Our and for only like gig. friends of the parents. Friends of the parents. Nice. Yeah, came by. That was our one gig. And then um, I say, you know, we kind of need a bass player. So I put an ad for a bass player 
and um, the one person who showed up was Carl Prakota, who became the guitarist of the Dream Syndicate. Right. And he said to me after the rehearsal, after the um, the audition, whatever, whatever you would call that, he said, they're really horrible, but I like your stuff. And that was the beginning of the Dream Syndicate. So that long-winded story is how Goat Deity brought me here today. Very good. <laughs> and how did you let the Goat Deity girls down? Well, okay, there's, there's a good postscript to the story. I told them, you know, I'm going to be doing this other band, but good luck with your thing. They end up being a band called Wednesday Week, who made records and did very well for themselves. Yeah. So they, you know, they did just fine. They kind of, as time went on, I'm sure, as was their intention, toned down all those things that made them like the Shags. They, they mm-hmm. started playing better and writing tighter pop songs. And oh, they sure. And they were a great band. I really liked Wednesday Week, but I really missed the earliest thing, which was just... Mm-hmm. Insane, yeah. Well, in all the best ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's Wednesday week fine band, but Goat Deity was man, that was something. Mm, interesting. Waiting for the reissue, right? right. <laughs> live at their mother's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, um, now, who's the most recent incarnation? You're currently in two bands, is that right? Mostly in two bands. I mean, you played that song of Crossing Dragon Bridge, and I do. Mm-hmm. I've done projects like that, where, which are solo, more or less, and I'll probably be doing another one like that, maybe next, actually. But but my main gigs are with the Miracle 3, Steve Wynn and the Miracle 3, and mm-hmm. we did a record last year called Northern Aggression, and been touring a lot for that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember all these things while I'm here. But the, You're a very busy guy. You I have like, a lot I to like, remember. I like that. But the other band is the Baseball Project, either singing Disturbed Garage Rock or songs about baseball <laughs> in a Disturbed Garage Rock fashion. Right. <laughs> and uh, how did the Baseball Project come about? Uh, the Baseball Project came about very specifically at a party for REM when they got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. They, this, I guess that now is about five years ago. And they had a party the night before at uh, Del Posto in, in, um, in the city. Great party. I mean, they just, you know, pulled out all the stops and mm-hmm. good chow and celebrity sightings and an open bar. And the latter part of that equation um, led to me and Scott McCoy hanging out at the bar about two in the morning and just going on about everything and finally zeroing in on baseball, which both of us were big baseball fans, but I don't think we knew the other one was. And we kind of got to the point where I said to him, you know, I've always wanted to do a record about baseball. And he said, me too. I said, no kidding we got to do that. Within a month, the record was written. We just started sending wow. files of songs back and forth, and we were just you know, having fun and amusing each other. And then we decided since we had the songs going, we would go in the studio and put them down, maybe make a 500 copies on vinyl or whatever. And we got together with Linda Pittman, my wife and drummer, who's also a big baseball fan, and Peter Buck, who's not that big a baseball fan, but has become one since then. And the four of us made this record for our own amusement that Yep Rock Records heard and loved and that was that. That five years later, where we've been, we've made three records now, and have probably played I don't know hundreds of shows by now. Mm-hmm. And you played, in the most unlikely places. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, because I see that you played uh, the Baseball Project did play on Letterman, and you played. At that was our first show. That was your first was show. Fir- the first time we played live. Well, I take it back. The first time we played live was when Linda and I got married. We played at the party the night before. But besides that, <laughs> our first gig was on on Letterman. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What yeah, I, ju- I just watched that. Just I just watched the. Yeah, that's uh, a good the way to start. It's yeah. all down, all downhill from there. No, no, we uh, actually, but we do crazy things. It's a, it's a really odd band. Like, you know, it's it's a fun band because we just get to do weird things. I've thrown out the first pitch at Wrigley Field in Chicago. I've you know done, and Scott did the same in Milwaukee. Um, you know, just it's 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 like we're very obviously serious about the music, and we we're taking you know we we writing songs and doing what we do have all all been doing for years, but it's just a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
Can you describe what it's like to throw out the first pitch at Wrigley Field? The most terrifying thing I've ever done. Really? Oh, my God. I mean, I've played festivals of 50,000 people. I've, I've played... I've made records with people who are my heroes. I've done, you know, whatever. Whatever I've done, it's all kind of you know, holding a guitar in your hand and, you know, screaming a lot and hoping it comes out okay. Standing on a pitcher's mound at a 100-year-old stadium at, at Wrigley Field and knowing there's no way you can bounce that ball. You got, you got, to, you got There's no <laughs> yeah, way. Right. My one time I threw out a first pitch, I'm going to bounce it, and I was terrified. And, and I threw kind of a strike I, it was a strike if you're eight foot tall it would be a strike <laughs> okay <laughs> so it was down the middle though. it was down the middle a little high maybe but so probably hit about 30 miles an hour <laughs> so that would have been a, a, an easy hit for anybody who was, i think so who, who was <laughs> if, uh, they, if they weren't laughing <laughs> I, might, I might have i might have blown it past a major league hitter if he would have been laughing right ha- laughing so hard so laughing so hard you call that a pitch but i got i was just not gonna bounce it and it was it was, it was yeah. great did you practice i did Oh. You did? Oh, for for a month before it. Really? For a full month, I was out there, <laughs> out there, you know, in the, in, in the park and on baseball fields and in parking lots and, and, and backstage, you know, cajoling Linda or Scott into letting me throw another one at them. Awesome. Oh, my God, that's great. <laughs> Scott, for the record, threw out the first pitch at a Brewers game and also threw a great pitch. So we are now. Really? Yeah, so we, we've, mm. we, we're hungry for more. It's, it was, it's on YouTube somewhere as well, I think. If you do happen to see it, it was really a better pitch than it looks like on, on camera. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a background of uh, sports writing, don't you? I was a sports writer when I was a teenager, um, when I was in high school, and okay. when I first went to college. That, that was kind of what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted mm-hmm. to write sports. I was a sports fan and a writer, and I guess that means you're a sports writer. It went pretty well, and I was, I guess, fairly good at it, and probably would have gone into that direction because it was the thing I could do. And then punk rock hit, and I'd been in bands from the time I was nine years old and, you know, played guitar and wrote songs early on, but just stopped doing it because, you know, mid-70s, you know, if you didn't play, like, Return to Forever or something like that, you you couldn't be in a band. You you had to to be able to write four side-long fugues about, you know, elves and stuff. There's, like, you know... There were all those records, those, like, giant-sided, like... Oh, God, yeah, I wasn't going to write pictures in an exhibition or whatever, you know? And, (laughs) And so, really, being in a band didn't seem like something to do, and then... Right about the time I went to school at UC Davis and was writing sports, punk rock hit, and I just got sucked up and then loved it. And mm-hmm. also, like for like for thousands of musicians, made you feel like you can actually make records and play shows and be in a band, and yeah. it just changed everything. A whole different world. Whole different world. Yeah. Very exciting. And so the irony of the whole thing is, I mean, at that point, I didn't write sports anymore. I started playing gigs and making records, and that's what I've been doing since then. The irony is I've ended up being a sports writer by being in the baseball project because I'm right. doing kind of what I, you know, the two things I've done my whole life. Oh, yeah, and the liner notes in the baseball project records are extensive because they're all stories about what the songs are about, which are stories about baseball. So yes. you're, you are, in effect, doing your sports writing, but for consumption by the music public. Right. I think one thing the baseball project's done, I mean, I, I don't know if it was our main objective, but we've gotten a lot of people who liked, would like our music anyway into baseball. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a cool game if you're into rock music and or kind of a, you know, a record geek because it has a lot of the same sensibilities, sort of, sort of collecting and archiving and right. statistical and, you know, sort of thing that other sports don't totally have. For example, um, um, uh, Matt Cain of the Giants threw a perfect game. And this, we have a song on our first record about how few perfect games there have been. And it seems like every time somebody throws a perfect game now, you'll see our Facebook site just light up with people oh, talking great. about it. Like, that is now the thing, yeah. you know, you're into, you know, what do you, I'm into the Stooges, Roxy Music, and Perfect Games, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
that's great. And and um, the writing and the liner notes is great because I'm not. I mean, I I know, I know baseball, but I don't know baseball deeply at all. There's a lot of folklore, you know, and that's what I really love about these records. Like they're just really. They're in-depth and they're great, you know, like neighborhood stories or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's that's what you don't see with baseball on the surface, mm-hmm. you know. But when you're a fan, you see that's a big part of it. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's right. I think with the baseball project, we've tried to avoid just being, you know, a rah-rah sports fan, which none of us would want to do. And making, like I say, more folklore, more humanizing it and more mm-hmm. taking... You know, I, I've I've really said many times, and I think it's true that in the baseball project, Scott and I are writing songs that are in, a w- in some ways more personal than things we do on our own records, on yeah. our regular our regular records, because I think we find that element in a lot of the players that relates back to what we feel about things. I wrote a song on the first record about Sandy Koufax, and wrote about the uh, he was the pitcher for the Dodgers for the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, and he retired when he was thirty, um, very young, wow. mostly because he. His arm was destroyed, and he really he just pitched, and he was in so much pain. But I wrote this song about the idea of getting older and looking at this point where you either, it's, you know, is it better to burn out or fade away? The, the idea mm-hmm. that you either can just keep going until there's nothing left or say, I'm at the top of my game, and I'm walking away. And this is something that relates to every musician. Every musician has sure. thought about that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's just one example. But I think if you looked at most of the songs on the Baseball Project record, they're not just about athletes who put on a uniform and run around the bases for two hours is more about just human qualities. Yeah, there's definitely personal issues within all of those. I mean, there, there's a lot of struggle and, and people that aren't recognized in by the mainstream, let's say. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, no, it's really it's really great. It's like an education for me. I'm like reading these stories. I'm like, oh my God, I never knew. You know? it's, it's just, that's the idea. Yeah. Is there anything that would be like the apex of like a performance for the baseball project. You know, playing at ballparks is great for us. I, th- I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of it. You know, we've and we have pl- we well we've done a few national anthems now. This will be, um, I think, the third we've done, and um, we've done "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" at the Philadelphia at the Phillies Stadium and at Brewers as well. Mm-hmm. We've um, played at a lot of minor league parks. I mean, playing at a baseball stadium is exciting for us. I mean, I think, you know, with Scott and Peter with the, with the Minus Five and with R.E.M. and me with the Miracle Three and my solo records, we all had the experience to play rock clubs all the time, which is great and is what we do and what we love. Right. So I'm almost more excited the baseball project when we do other things besides that, mm-hmm. playing in bizarre weird things like that right and 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 you played at the metropolitan museum of art well that was great yeah what was that whole thing that they had an exhibition well two things going once they had one thing a collection of baseball cards that they yeah the met has a collection archive of the most amazing baseball cards ever the most valuable cards and they have had this collection just in storage forever and they finally brought them out i think they're still up now and they so it was that and also they had an exhibition about breaking the color line by jackie robinson and everything around that so they had speakers and um a whole thing for that and they asked us to play there which was great playing the met i mean that's that's online you can find that i think probably on their site on on our facebook site but it's around there but it was a great you know it was crazy you're playing you finish your gig and you're wiping out the sweat and you're walking by you know ancient greek relics you know it's amazing (laughs) it's like don't wipe your hand on that on that parchment over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. That's <laughs> not the backstage towel. That's awesome. I that's just, the shroud of something. Right. That's not for the deli tray. <laughs> right. Oh my god, that's so funny. Um, and, and you've been um, you've been all over the world with your music. 
Yeah, and just recently, in fact, this can, can be a lead into some stuff we're going to be able to play, yeah. but um, I just went down to Australia. Um, I hadn't been there since, well, in 25 years ago, I went with, went with the Dream Syndicate, and I hadn't been there in that, that long a time, and I was brought down there for the Hoodoo Guru's 30th anniversary festival they put together, which oh. was great. They did it all over the country. I was invited for the Melbourne show and the Sydney show. I put together a band for this event with Linda and also with Ken Fox and Keith Strength from the Flesh Tones. Oh, wow. We rehearsed a couple times and mm -hmm. played down there, played four shows down there, and it was so much fun. Really, really good, and uh, we had a blast. Got to, I mean, the, the bill was, you know, got it. Size Flesh Tones, Hoodoo Gurus, and my thing was the, the Sonics, Red Cross, wow. the five six seven eights, the Hard-Ons, Died Pretty. Um, um, wow. I know, I'm just, I'm just remembering off the top of my head right now, there were just so, mm -hmm. many, so many fantastic bands playing there. It was really, really fun. So I came back, you know, as I will do when I go places with a lot of new CDs and stuff to play. So I had found a couple things. So, with, you know, we'll play a couple Australian things here. To, Killer. I got to hear. I think the first thing we have lined up is... Um, from Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, who a band that I'd heard about, and I kind of thought it was like a 70s kind of arena rock band, but found out that he'd actually had a lot of cool kind of beat music hits in the 60s. And um, I heard this one song, this is a little from the early 70s, but a song that I heard and just really liked. So I bought the CD and brought it all the way from uh, from Sydney to, to Jersey City. You did, yeah. The song's called Most People I Know Think That I'm Crazy. No. And so my guest is Steve Wynn. And uh, he's going to be spinning the tunes. So this is Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs for opening the first set. Please stay tuned. I can't figure out what's wrong with my way of thinking. Most people I can't know figure out think that I'm crazy. crazy. I know at times I act a little And we are back. My that guest was, is yeah. Steve Wynn. Yes. And what did we just hear then? That was the Sunny Boys from Australia. Love the Sunny Boys. Yes. Yeah, oh, you, you, you knew their stuff, really? Yes. See, I didn't at all. Oh, okay. They were, it's funny because, and, and you just asked me in, um, when we were playing that if I was a record collector, and I, I always feel like I am, you know, and then there'll be so many things I don't know about, which is the joys of collecting records. And oh. when I was, we were down in Australia, they played on the festival that we did. They did? They did, and they oh. hadn't played in years, but wow. they played, they were the first band on the bill at both shows, and this was like a 12-hour show. Oh, and so I, you didn't see them. I didn't see them. It, it, it would have <laughs> meant being there for the full marathon, which wow. I wouldn't have no problem doing if I wasn't playing at the end of the day, because right, that would sure. not be a... So yeah. I didn't see them, but I w but since people talked about them so much, I went out and picked up that record. And yeah, yeah, they're great. They are really a great band. Well, yeah, so sort of one of those. Everyone should pick that up. That thank was great. Thank you for playing the Sunny Boys. Yeah, and that song was great, and I've been playing it all the time. On the other hand, the song before that, most people I know think that I'm crazy. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't. I heard and I really dig, really dug it. I heard, actually um, was played over um, the PA between bands at the festival, so I went out and got the CD. 
Let me tell you, the CD's terrible. Don't get it. Find that find that song if you can. Get it on get it on. I don't know. Listen on Spotify or on YouTube, whatever. The album's really awful, but that's a great song. And um, almost if I got the wrong record, but um, that that uh, I like that. So you got to hear that. In the, keeping the Australian thing going, this is a I guess double story here. But when when I was over there, I got turned on to this record um, by a guy named Jim Keys, and Jim was the the singer of the Masters Apprentice, mm-hmm. great Australian band, kind of I guess best known for doing the song "How Is the Air" up there, which is great, really great song. They've got a couple songs on Nuggets too. He, I think he had been out of music for a little while, but somebody down in Melbourne put together um, a project, uh, with, put a band together, and made a record with Jim Keyes, a, a, a new solo record. The guy's in his late 60s, and the record's just rocking. And he gave, he, it's, it was like the Rick Rubin thing, where he gave him a whole bunch of songs and said, which ones do you want to record? And he does um, versions of Do Ya, By The Move, Time Has Come oh, Today, wow. um, Chambers Brothers, um, um, a one two five by the haunted, and among other things, he did a version of my song, "Tell Me When It's Over," the first song in Days of Wine and Roses, and mm-hmm. we'll play it in a second. And I'm gonna tell you, I, th- I think I think maybe his version is better. I think it's just really, really, <laughs> really good. I know that you know they shouldn't say that kind of thing, but it, it blew me away. Um, and somebody wrote in and said, "Say something about Brendan Mullen," and which mm. I'd be happy to do because Brendan was. Um, a really good friend, and also really had a lot to do with helping the Dream Syndicate get started. And Brendan, who passed away, I, th- I think it was last year, um, um, w- uh, was a promoter. Well, did a lot of things. He w- he ran the Mask Club, the legendary punk rock club of L.A., and promoted shows and ran the club lingerie and and booked our first show. The first time we played a Dream Syndicate opening for Brian Brain. Oh wow! Yeah, that takes might take you back or might not. Yes. The Martin band Atkins. Martin, Ad- from Martin Atkins from Pill, mm-hmm. and we opened for them. It was a great show, great first show to have for a band like us. And um, after that, we were never asked to play there again. And I would call him and leave messages and, you know, stop by, nothing. I finally saw him at a party about four months later. And, you know, four months when you're 22 is a million years. But, sure. you know, we haven't played there in four months. Saw him at a party, and I said, you know, I finally got the nerve, had a few beers in me. I said, Brendan, why won't you book us at Club Lingerie? I mean, you know, um, we've played a good show, and I, you know, I thought it went pretty well. He said, and he was Scottish. I'm not going to try to do his Scottish brogue because it would be really <laughs> embarrassing. But add that to this next statement. He said, because you're a third-rate Velvet Underground ripoff band, there you go. But, which, you know, oh. we will. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Don't, don't, don't be horrified. I thought I was okay with that. Um, we eventually played there many times and became friends. But that kind of attitude that you'd find in any scene, definitely in LA, where people were kind of, if you were a new band, they'd find ways to tell you what you're doing has been done, hasn't been done, shouldn't be done, do it this way, do it that way, led to this song, led to Tell Me When It's Over, which was kind of my feeling about, you know, I know I'm. 21 and I know that there are a lot of people come before me and there's a whole scene here and you know we don't know the ropes but you know don't even tell me how it's done just let me know when it's done and uh, there you go that's that's um, the song that we recorded and now Jim Keyes the legendary Australian singer did his own version so that is what we're, we're gonna hear next and yeah so Jim Keyes from his comeback record doing um, the dream syndicates tell me when it's over nice so my guest is Steve Wynn and uh, we will be back Stay tuned.
And we are back. My guest is Steve Wynn, and Steve is taking over the controls as the DJ today. What did we just hear? Not the physical controls. I'm, I'm, watch, I'm watching. Uh, I'm watching with the faders, and I'm really jealous because <laughs> somebody called. Somebody wrote in. I said called in. Somebody wrote in and said mm-hmm. it was shades of KDVS, and that person remembers or knows about when I was a DJ. I was a DJ at the station KDVS in Davis, California. About 30 years ago, I had a show called Three Minute Rock and Roll, which at that time was you know, kind of a radical concept. You know? oh. Again, back, going back to what we were talking about earlier, songs under three minutes. That was, you know, that's, that's, that's wild. Well, and that ties <laughs> in completely because the song that we did just hear from, from Ivan Julian, which I know you have something to say about probably, is on the 259 label. Oh, is it really? Yes. That's, well, there you go. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. That's great. Okay, well, they, they, and that was <laughs> Ivan Julian um, waved from, from his debut solo record i believe and it's great it's a great record the naked flame yeah what a great record ivan julian waves flesh tones i wish you would from their last album which is just great there they just get better and better and i was fortunate enough not only to see them play in australia but to actually be in the band for one week with ken fox and keith string for the flesh tones and that was a blast that was like you know i could i felt like i was standing with my guitar in my hands in front of a microphone and still just being in the audience watching what they were doing oh it was really like a weird weird you know disconnect there you know but how did you do i i, I held up pretty well I, okay. I was fine i was like a member of this hybrid flesh tone steve Wynn miracle three experience kind of thing right mm-hmm. there it was great because the dream syndicate early on was very influenced by the flesh tones especially for me can't even speak for my bandmates but they were about my favorite band in the universe like in 1981 i was a fanatic for for Roman gods and I would see them live and just really love them and I think if you listen to the Days of Wine and Roses you can hear some songs where the that influence is there well playing the songs with Keith and Ken kind of edged the songs back to where the influence originally came from and which was was kind of a surreal thing that was just great and speaking of that first record that ties into the the first song we heard Jim Keys from legendary Australian band The Master's Apprentice mm-hmm. doing my song of all things doing Tell Me When It's Over and doing a great version of it, yeah, Pro- it it's, really probably hard, yeah, it's probably really hard to find that record although is it hard to find anything you know you were talking about finding a Sonic's Rendezvous re- band record yeah. on, a, on a wall you know and, and I know that the thrill of finding I remember finding a Stan Dell's record I was dying to find 30 years ago and you know now when I tell you about Jim Key's record you should be able to just go and Google it for five minutes and have it in your own clammy hands. So try to get that one. Right. It's, it's a really good record. Or not even a, in your hands, but electronically <laughs> yeah. loaded into your... It's so old-fashioned, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Implanted into your skull. Right. <laughs> We're going to bypass will. your ears even. I'm sure we will soon. We'll be, <laughs> you know, it's probably not long for the days where like, you can walk past somebody on the street and just scan them and know what's in their record collection. Right, right. Like, just yeah. know what they're listening yeah. to right now. Like, oh, he listens know to that. Know what's in You'll absorb yeah. it. You will, it'll be in your right. bloodstream. You know, right. You know, like, yeah, like the, the way you, like, bump the yes. iPhones to get the information. Oh you can God. just, like, I could just brush past you and, like, download your record collection. Can we just skip this whole part? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming very disturbed. <laughs> yeah, it'll all happen. Everything will happen. I know. In the next five minutes. By the time we finish the next song, the whole world will have changed and... For the better, I hope. Well, it does. It does. It, it does. Now you have a request to write a song about Matt Cain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, I guarantee when the Baseball Project plays, he will be added to Harvey Haddock's our song about perfect games. So mm-hmm. that song is forever being updated, maybe a little too oh, much. So you actually list in that song, you actually list the, the people who did pitch perfect games in Every the song? one of them. Every one. Yeah, that, I'm, I, oh. one of my things I'm most proud of in songwriting is that that song, because we, there were 17 people as of the writing of that song had thrown perfect games, mm-hmm. and they're all listed in melodic form, in rhyming fashion. It was like really a, a difficult, challenging, crossword yeah. puzzle kind of thing to put together. 
And that was fine. The song worked out. Since the time of the song, I think five more people have thrown perfect games, and we keep updating it. Uh, it's a long. Right, it's, it's, it's whatever yeah. five It's not three minute rock and roll. I'll tell you that right. much. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, it's, it's as long as a baseball game now. It's it's a perfect game in real time. Right, <laughs> right. Have you ever um, gotten feedback about the baseball project from people from like relatives of people that you've written about who are no longer alive? Yes, in fact, there've been a few cases of that, but one in particular, which is great, is goes to that song Harvey Haddock's. Mm-hmm. Um, Harvey, who for the non fans out there or, or people who don't know the record. He was a guy who in, pitched for the Milwaukee Braves in, in 19, 1959. I had to sing the song in my head. It's like when you have to sing the alphabet song to know which letter is next. I had to, <laughs> I had to, I had to sing the song in my head. 1959, yeah. In 1959, Harvey Haddock of the Milwaukee Braves threw a perfect game, but his team hadn't scored either. So um, I sorry, he was facing the Milwaukee Braves. And he, uh, the game went 12 innings, and he was still perfect, and then he lost in the 13th. Anyway. He died um, a while back, but his wife, um, Marsha Haddix, is still alive. And she got a hold of the record and loves the song, mm. wrote to me and said, you, you're, I love your song about Harvey. It's, it's the kind of music Harvey would have liked. You know, he kinda, oh. He'd pick up the guitar and play that country music, and he would have liked that song. So that, that, was, that was great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that was cool. What a great way to acknowledge something like that. So, so did he get credit for A Perfect Game? Because you said that he they He did not get credit, and nor should he, really. I mean, mm-hmm. A Perfect Game is, you know, the, a game where you don't allow any for again for I'm sorry to be speaking this way to people who are probably just you know going blank well, I right know, now. It's funny, and but I'm not per, really like a, a huge yeah. baseball fan, and we keep yeah. on talking about it. But yeah. I just find it really interesting. It is, and a perfect game is literally a perfect game. You don't allow anybody to reach base, but it's only happened twenty, uh, I guess not twenty-two times in the last hundred and fifty years. It's yeah. a very rare occurrence. And um, Harvey did have it going for twelve innings, but then he gave up a hit. So that um, wow, no, not perfect. But as the song claims, perfection is defined by its imperfections. Whoa, there you go. That's, that's nice. There's some late late night dorm room talk there. But, but it's true. You know, that, 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 that's, that's, the beauty of perfection is its imperfection. Go, Harvey, go. Um, and I do have a question here. Um, do you hear from Kendra Smith? I do now and then. Kendra um, lives a very remote life, as she has for a long time. And she really, she stopped, as far as I know, making, well, she stopped making records about 20 years ago. And mm. I know she crops up now and then will play, but really does not, you know, have much of a public life, especially when it comes to music. It really, out of the blue, she'll write me a postcard or call me on the phone. And that's, oh. that's kind of the way it works with her. So I love hearing from her. And if by some weird coincidence Kendra's out there, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Wow. Well, I, I'll tell you what we got here. I've, I've got something. I've got the world premiere of something here, right here. I'm pretty excited about this. Mm-hmm. Um, my bandmate and one of my oldest friends, Peter Buck, after REM broke up last fall, made a solo record. Okay. And he, I had heard he was, he he'd said he was going to do it, and I was amazed because seemed like just days went by or a very short amount of time went by, and he went ahead and made it. This is great, and the song, and it's fantastic. Wow. And the band is is essentially REM without Michael. It's, it's, it's Scott McCoy and um, Bill Rieflin and Mike Mills and then also Lenny Kay. And that's kind of the band on the record. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really good. Really, you know, when he, when he told me about the record, I thought it was going to be kind of his or Skip Spence record, that kind of thing, like a really damaged or like Flies on Sherbet. Kind of this really all over the map, garage rock, pop music, surf music, little, everything all rolled into one mm. and um, hard to even describe. But, it's, but Peter is actually singing on most of the record. And Peter, to the best of my knowledge, has only sung on record twice ever. I think he sang a backing vocal on one R.E.M. song and he, he speaks one line on the last Baseball Project record. And that's the extent of his vocalizing on record. So here you go, a record 
a whole record with Peter singing lead vocals. and um, He's got something to say now. He's got something to say. He really does. <laughs> is, I'll tell you, the lyrics in the record are fantastic. They're really good, really, you know, twisted and, you know, it's something between autobiographical and then autobiographical if he was some character he invented. Something between the two. Very good. And um, this one we're going to play here is called One Million B.C. I think it's going to be the lead-off track. All right. So uh, my guest is... Steve Wynn, and I just, i got to put my glasses on here. One Million B.C. is the name of it? Yes. Okay. Peter Buck. That's what we're going to hear next. Folks, stay tuned. Let me try this again. It looks yeah. like we're uh, having some... Is it, is it, play, is it play proof? It's, it's playing. It was playing, but I was not hearing anything. It was like some watermark self-destructive copy that doesn't play. I don't know. Wouldn't that be terrible if I, if I tease the whole thing and it doesn't actually play? You know what? Can you hum it? Can you play off my phone? <laughs> if I can do like a, a phone jack, would that work? I'll, Let me. I'll play off my phone or on the microphone. That 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 that'll, that that will do that for a second. That way, I can actually say that I really did it. Okay. Because I'm not going to you know, say, you know, I got the world premiere, and I even asked Peter if it was okay, and he said he encouraged it. And so, you know, here we are talking well, about it. Well, you said that it was vinyl only. See, and that's what this is. That's the thing. It's vinyl only, and that's an actual CD. Yeah. So here we go. Here we go. This is great. This is going to be. It will sound better than this. It's actually 10 million BC. I'm gonna give you just that much as a teaser because I know it's, it's really that that's probably gonna destroy your your speakers and your ears at the same time. But it's really good. What can I say? That 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 gives you an indication, and we've talked about it. You'll just have to wait for it. Unfortunately, I got it. <laughs> wait, I think I got it. Now. Oh, really? You think you did? Yeah. Oh, there you go. There See, go. it sounds totally different now. <laughs> 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 telling us to wake up. <laughs> exactly. And we're back. Now the DB's telling us to wake up. Right. Thank you, Peter Holzapple. Yeah. Um, it's always good to uh, be woken up 
by by Peter. Th- that's that's from from their latest album, um, the DB, the B, DBs. Um, it's so new, I forget the name of it. Falling the, off the sky. Falling off the sky. But it's a great record. It, and that's the um, opening track. That time is gone. Really, just you know, fantastic. Um, I'm a. I was talking earlier about what a fan I was the Flesh Tones, but also the DBs were probably my other favorite band back then. And um, I remember coming to Maxwell's for the first time and just thinking I was in this hallowed ground of bands like the DBs and the Feelies and all that, and the Bongos. So it's, anyway, they're still great. Before that was um, Peter Buck from his upcoming debut solo album. Oh, thank goodness we got that. We got the play. So, so, <laughs> so you know, it's really great because I, the song's called 10 Million BC, and I would have felt really bad if everybody would have heard it and made their judgment on the record based on me playing it off my phone. Off of the phone. <laughs> the microphone. Oh, yeah, being held. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. They would yeah. say, well, yeah. God, it sounds like a good record, but the sound quality is so terrible. No, 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 it's no. really good. Yeah. But, so there you and go. And I'm glad we did get that sorted yeah. out there. We got yeah. that sorted out. It turns out, as Diane, as you pointed out, it is vinyl only, so here I am walking with the CD of the record, which makes no sense, but it was a burned computer yep. file of the record. Right, and not an actual CD player. Yeah, it's file. a limited edition of one CD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you can, anybody who finds me, you know, on the train going back from here today can hold me up and steal that and sell the one CD on eBay. And Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> probably I wanna, not. I don't want to break any suggestions there. But yeah. uh, And again, a reminder that we'll probably be doing a new record later this year or early next year, new uh new baseball project record with both Peter and Mike because Mike is really a full member of the band now. So that'll be a lot of fun. Look forward to that. And I wanted to, you know, you were talking about like being all over the map and stuff and I just wanted to ask you a little bit because it seems like many of your recordings are, it's not like you have a favorite recording studio and it almost seems as if you take on recording as like an adventure, um, which is, Hmm. I think that it's rare. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of people will go to, it's like, oh yeah, we're going to this recording and like you just see artists who record at the same place over and over again. And Mm -hmm. I'd just like to hear what your your take is on the experience of recording because it just seems like you, you go in like kind of ready for anything, which is not the safest you know, most controlling way to be. And, no. and for an artist, you know, that's, it's kind of cool. So I just want to see what you, you know, how do th- those things happen? I don't like things being safe and controlled and predictable. And I, I like, I think I like being surprised for any, well, anything I do. I mean, in, in daily life and definitely in songwriting and recording and playing shows too. I like something new happening, something I couldn't have planned on, something I hadn't predicted that I can kind of, that I can react to. And so I like playing with new people all the time, playing in new places, traveling a lot, and definitely recording in new places. And I think that my favorite records I've made have been when I've been put in an unfamiliar environment. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I made um, Here Come the Miracles back in 2001 in Tucson, um, I had never spent much time there, let alone made a record there. And that new environment and new people around me and new um, ways of doing things inspired me a lot. When I made Crossing Dragon Bridge, um, in Slovenia a few years ago. That was a really inspiring thing because just I took in the whole atmosphere. And working with the baseball project with Gutterball, a band I played with 20 years ago, with um, so many different things I've done have always been fueled by new things. That's probably always going to be that way. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I think people, a lot of people feel safe when they know everything's going to happen. They can kind of control their environment. It's never been that way for me. Yeah. Once I can control the environment, I get bored and distracted, and that's not a good fuel for oh. doing good stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. and you know that, that not controlling it actually works for you. It, it, it really has, yeah. I, I know more and more. So I mean, I'm always looking for someplace new to record mm-hmm. and new ways of doing things, new cool. people to play with. And and I think that's one of the things that shows like your records are not, there's no carbon copy records out of 
you're what do you have out like 25 records or something like that i think about that many i think i think about 25 studio records then you know there's a lot of live records yeah. and rarities and outtakes and things like that but 25 actual studio records and yeah, they're all pretty different. I mean, from the very beginning, the, the feeling for me, I guess maybe by being fans, being a fan early on of people like Bob Dylan or, or Neil Young or, or Lou Reed or David Boy or whatever, the, you know, the heroes everybody had back in the 70s were people who reinvented themselves every time at, every time they'd make a record. And I think maybe they did that out of boredom or curiosity or, or the fact that people made more records back then so you really mm-hmm. wanted to kind of have something new going on all the time. I don't know what, but that excited me. And when we made The Days of Wine and Roses, I really felt like, we did that record as well as it could possibly be done. And the last thing I wanted to do was make that same record again. So we made The Medicine Show, a very different record yeah. that was also really good and people liked a lot. And we didn't repeat that one either. Just it, it, That kind of set the tone early on. In a way, that can sometimes confuse fans or an audience. But I think after doing it now for 30 years, people expect nothing from me except that I'm just going to do something I like doing every right, time out. that it's going to be you. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I like every record I've made. I can, I can, you, know, you, you were talking earlier about having done shows like this with people who, when you bring up a certain record they made or a band they played with, will you know, give you the cold shoulder and say, I don't want to talk about that. You know, I know that happens, and I know a lot of people say, I won't play songs by this band or that band, or I won't play songs I wrote before this year. I don't get that. I mean, I feel like anything you do, you should like it. It should be your favorite thing in the world. Maybe your taste will change, and you'll go somewhere else, and you'll not want to play, I don't know, every song you've ever written. I, I couldn't even begin to do that, but everything I made was for the reason that I wanted to hear it at that time. And you're just looking back on good times. Right. They're all kind of markers of a certain time in your life and what mm-hmm. you were doing where you were at. And, you know, you can pinpoint maybe your mood at the time or what you were listening to or oh, yeah, the, absolutely. the place you were or the things were exciting you. And that's, for me, a way a record should be. It should be like a little snapshot of a, of a time in your life. We were talking about, of course, being a DJ and what that, you know, playing records for people and then, you know, writing records. And I'm going to guess that you pretty much just write everything for yourself. Have you ever really written something for somebody else? You mean like writing a song for someone else to sing or perform? Or perform? Yeah. I have you know, a few times here and there. And how is that for you? I like it. You do? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been hooked up at various times with publishers I've had who said, hey, you had to write with this person, they're making a record or co-write with that person, you know, things like that. I like that. I mean, I've, one of my you know, things I wish I would have been around for is the era of the Brill Building. I've, I have a very romantic mm-hmm. idea of the whole Goffin King and Manwile, all that kind of thing where, they, where, they would, where Neil Sadak would walk in and say, I need a song for you know, the, the Shirelles by 5 o'clock, and they say, okay, got it. It's exciting. Again, yeah. it goes back to being surprised. By it goes back to, ha- you know, not having things be easy or predictable. I, you talked about um, the punk scene, you know, like like the explosion of the punk scene. Was there any particular gig or personality or something that really had you just stop and stare? Like, or really just, that just impacted you so much at that time? I mean, everything back then, you know, and anybody who was there, you know, who might be in my age or have been around that time knows how it is, you were constantly getting that feeling. Um, mm. You know, probably the, I don't know, the first band that hit me that way might have been The Clash or The Sex Pistols, the, 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 the main ones. The Jam were a real big one. Um, Elvis Costello, when he was starting out. The, the great thing then was when people people would have new singles every every few months. Every time they had a new single, they'd taken a quantum leap from where they were before. 
you know, when, when The Clash would put out White Man and Hammersmith Palais or, you know, or Elvis Costello would put out Radio Radio or or, um, or the jam moved on to the songs from All Mod Cons or whatever. And every time somebody made a new record, it's like, I didn't see that coming. And that was exciting. And I think that also, mm-hmm. like we are talking about before, really influenced the way I, I feel about music. Your newest record should be new and different and bring in things you didn't have before. And bands still do that. And the one thing that I it frustrates me about the last 20 years of making records is people's releases will get further and further apart. And I think then you put too much importance on each record. You know, yeah. if you make records all the time and put out singles all the time, you just knock them out. Right. Just blow them out. Whatever you're into that minute, do it and forget about it. I think the longer you wait between records, the more precious you get about it. And that's not a, hmm. usually not a formula for making great music. And I wouldn't want to diminish what I think your talents are because I think that you are a huge talent and amazing songwriter. You know, you're a working class musician. Like you're mm-hmm. out there all the time and you're putting out stuff and you're in a bunch of bands instead of just having the one thing like, oh, well, I'm going to wait on this and I'll time that just right. It's like, I love the fact that you're always out there and you're, you know, jumping in. I mean, you've played live on FMU a few times in the last number of years. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm love coming down here. As you, as you, um, yeah, and it feels like that there's nothing below you. You know, like you're like, I mean, and I don't mean it like, oh, he's going to be, you know. There's a lot of ways to take that. <laughs> well, beneath you in yeah, terms of, yeah. you know, like, like, oh, I would do that. Like, like right. if it sounds like fun, you'll take it on. Yeah, and so often the things that you thought didn't have much chance of being good or interesting or was not over you, the kind of things where you might walk into it and, and not, this wouldn't include coming to WFMU, but a lot of times when you take on maybe a gig or something, you think, why am I doing this? Those will be the best things you did because you just had no idea what to expect. It's good doing a, a million different things, trying different stuff. It, I, I've always felt that most of the people who had the greatest collection of music, they, the the best, who've made the most great records, who've had the great greatest breadth of, of of catalog. Those are the people. Those people all made a lot of terrible records. And I don't think this applies to the stuff I've done, but I think that you have to be able to take the chance to do something really awful to do really good things. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of just say, I'm going to just go on a limb here and do something I've never done before. And if it stinks, it stinks. Yeah. And I kind of, I've had that feeling too. I don't think I've made the really horrible records. I think I still have, that's still the one ambition I have for you the next. You still have the horrible record in Yeah, you? I got to make something really bad someday. <laughs> <laughs> that's your goal. Uh, yeah, I'll do it. Here comes that awful one now. Yeah, so brace yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about not awful records, we got a comment from somebody uh, overseas who said that the base- baseball project show in Nijmegen, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Nijmegen. Yeah, yeah. Nijmegen mm-hmm. was, uh, he says, was, was really great and... Uh, that they don't know a lot about baseball, but um, no. In fact, we the baseball project is barely played over in Europe. We did a festival in Spain once, and last summer we did a handful of shows. We did that show in Nijmegen, and then some festivals in Italy and in um, Croatia. Mm. Um, and they're great shows. The reason we haven't played in Europe that much is because that very reason. Baseball. And as much as we try to tell people, like we do here, and especially over there, you don't have to like baseball. They're just they're just pop songs, and. Um, but still, think of all the bands you've loved and I've loved and, and everybody out there has loved where you'd hear the words and they meant they're crazy, you know. I mean, what is Captain Beefheart? What is, you know, that, that right. you know, you're, you're, you're making your own stories with that one. And, yeah. and so, th- so lyrics aren't always linear, aren't, aren't always telling a direct literal story. And if you want, you can just tune out everything we're singing in the baseball project and wait for the chorus and you can be happy with that. Right. So take it on any <laughs> level you want. But having said that, the, the Nybegin show was, was a blast. I'd like to get back there. And this does transition to the next the next set of music. And I know we're nearing the end of my guest DJ stint, sadly. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I really want to cover this. one of the first singles I ever had in my life. And, of course, at the time, I was nine and didn't 
you know, I didn't know what a Holland was. You know, I didn't. Right. It was maybe as it knew it was a Beach Boys album. Not much beyond that. This is a band called the T Set, and uh, the song's called My Bell and Me. And I'm gonna try to learn how to play it while we all listen to it together right now. All right. My guest is Steve Wynn, and this is My Bell and Me. Stay tuned. My Bell and Me. Child of the sun and the sky and the deep blue sea, my belle amie. Après tous les beaux jours, je te dis merci, merci. You were the answer on all my questions before we're through. I want to tell you that I adore you and always do. That you amaze me by leaving me. And we are back. We're back. There we go. Yes. We were, we were talking about DJing and then, then neglected to do exactly that. <laughs> I know. Imagine that. <laughs> Bring people up here so I can get... That, 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 was, um, that was a little, little Holland set, a little mini, mini Dutch set. That was yes. Kind of the Shocking Blue, Long and Lonesome Road, which um, you know probably all of you know Venus. That was the huge hit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of you know the records, too, because they did you know, Love Buzz. was a great song. Nirvana covered that. Yeah. But that's my favorite Shocking Blue song, Long and Lonesome Road. Um, and, and do you have plans to cover that? Yeah, I think so. And the thing is, you know, here I'm talking about all these songs from Holland I want to cover on this Belgian tour because it's as close as I can get. Because, I mean, <laughs> there are Belgian bands like uh, there's a band called Deus who are really good. And, um, but, you know, otherwise, you know, the closest I get to a Belgian cover is doing Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye because it was written there. So maybe, <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> but otherwise, I got to cheat and do ho- songs from Holland and maybe, you know, get people angry. But I know that our... our is, is there anywhere in Europe that you um, prefer that you really... Because I know that you really do a lot of traveling and you've gotten to know a lot of places. Is there anything that's a favorite for you? I get asked that a lot, and it's a fair question because, you know, I mean, and then I do have things I like about each place. I mean, I love being a food fan. I love playing Spain, Italy, and Greece, you know, because, mm. you know, really what it comes down to, I love, I, mean, I love playing Holland. I love playing Germany, and Norway's always been great. Re- after you've been touring for a long time you tend to make a lot of friends every place you go. Mm. And it makes every city great. You know, I mean, I've, there are cities I've been to that might be kind of the most bleak, industrial, boring city. But when I think about it, I think about, oh, that really cool DJ I met there. And we always go out and talk about music till three in the morning. And it becomes a great city. So right. really, you know, cities become defined not necessarily by the sites and the museums and this and that, but just by people you know. Mm-hmm. And one very nice benefit of, of my job, of my gig, is that I meet a lot of nice people. And online, you've got stevewin.net, and uh, is there a baseball project? Is it a .com or your Facebook? The baseballproject.net. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, stevewin.net, base, the, the baseballproject.net. Both bands uh, have Facebook pages. Uh, so check up on what's going on. It's gonna, you know, it could be all cool stuff. You know, and, and I wanted to ask you something completely off topic, but what's Please. it like having the name Steve Wynn? Like when you, st- when the internet quote started, there is another Steve Wynn who may not be as popular as you, but probably controls more monetary things. I'm not sure about right now for a while. The first thing that would come up would always be my website. And I was really happy about that. Right. That comes and goes at various times. Yeah. I just kind of ignore it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. First of all, he's not a Steve. He's Steven with a PH. So it just doesn't oh, count. He, he, is? he has oh, no, okay. he has no right to the V. Just like he's, he's, you know, he may have all that money, but he cannot, he cannot annex my V. You can't buy a V for <laughs> You all can't the money buy that V. Yeah, it's not right. Take a look at that birth yeah. certificate. Yeah, just, you know, because I, I have friends in bands who are like, when the internet, quote, started, they changed the names of their bands because they were named after things that were like public phenomenon or mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. they would get buried in searches. And yeah. they literally thought, you know, we're just going to, it's just going to be much harder for us. And, mm-hmm. uh, 
with a with a birth name, what are you going to do? I think outside of the <laughs> the names, I think nobody's confusing the two of us. Well, no, that's yeah, yeah, and I, I guess it could be frustrating for yeah. about five minutes. For about five minutes, and I forget about it. Yeah, yeah. awesome. So, um, so Steve, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. It was great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, excited that I was excited that you were coming here, and I'm excited that you've been here, and I'll be sorry to see you go, but. You're around and you're playing and, you know, and, and you're a huge friend of FMU. And I do want to thank you for that because there's, you know, you've got, we have uh, some live stuff by Steve on the, the free music archive, you know. When yes, you're here. yes. Go up there and check that stuff out. Yeah, for sure. You know, just for, for bringing what you bring to a show because your enthusiasm and your, and like we were talking about your sense of adventure, mm-hmm. it really comes out, you know. It's a lot of fun. I know. You know, I've always enjoyed, I mean, I've done a lot of shows with Joe Belock and I'm always, you know. I know we've gone on there and played some covers we'd learned that morning, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that's the fun of it. <laughs> and I think, I mean, Joe and I have been talking about putting together a CD of kind of the, the best of all those shows, which we're going to do at some point oh, to cool. commemorate, because I think I've done now about a half dozen shows uh, with Joe, more or less, something like that, so yeah, uh, yeah. love to put those together, but it's always fun. I really have always been a fan of live radio, whether from the standpoint of being a musician or being a DJ mm-hmm. or a music fan, anything. I will be back for sure. He will. Absolutely. Front and center, Steve Wynn. Thank you very much, and thank you for everything that you've given to the world of music. Thank you, Dan. It's really nice. Huge contribution, and and who knows what's next? Who knows what's next? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the uh, the last thing we're going out with? Oh, yeah, because along with, you know, things that have been hyping and self-serving and my friends, this is um, probably my favorite song right now by Someday. I don't know it all, but I just played the song to death. This is um, The O.C.'s. Really great band, probably a lot of you know. And this is from the last record, um, "The Dream." And this, I think, uh, this is, I think I must have played this about a dozen times in a row, several days in a row last l- earlier this year. So it, it's fried my brain in all the best ways. Hope awesome. you like it. Very good. So that's the last selection from Steve Wynn, and uh, here's some DOCs. Stay tuned. <laughs>
that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. We are WFNU.